So for the last several months now, uh, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and of course we're in chapter number 7, and this is our second week in chapter number 7. We have two more weeks in chapter number 7 after this, and there's 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, so you can figure we'll be doing this for the majority of 2019. Uh, no, we won't. We're going to fly through 8, 9, and 10, and 11, 12. There, there's not, we're going to get a little bit faster through them. We're just slowing down in chapter number 7 for a while. But the book of Ecclesiastes is an, an interesting book. Uh, of course, it's written by Solomon, and it's written at the end of his life. And Proverbs, of course, was written as an a instruction book to his children. And as he was leaving, he was kind of giving them some advice, some things to remember. And at the book of Ecclesiastes, he's at the end of his life, and he's, he's looking back at everything he's done in his life. And he's, he's lived an incredible life, and he is lamenting the meaninglessness of life without God. And now, I don't want you to think, he's not, he's not sitting around going, man, life is so pathetic. All, you gotta, all we got is Jesus. He's not doing that. He is, he is trying to help us not make the mistakes that too many people make, pursuing all these things he pursued and accomplished. And this was, this was his ministry. God called him to pursue all these things and get all these things and live all these things and, and see that there was no joy in them, that the only place we could find true fulfillment, true joy was in a lasting relationship with God. So Solomon, he, he lived an incredible life. He, he, he lived life to the fullest. He threw incredible parties for years. They would have parties seven days a week where they would feed 25,000 people and just have massive uh, feasts and massive festivals. And he did that for years and said, man, I did that. And I, I, I did all the party scene, the people pursue that, a life of pleasure and joy. I did that. And it's, it's pointless. And then he started building things. He goes, I don't know what to do. I'll find fulfillment and I'll find success and I'll find joy in, in doing things and building things. And so he built massive palaces for him and his wives and took 14 years to build them. And just, just thousands and hundreds of thousands of men and millions and millions of dollars go into these things. And he planted these tremendous forests, these national forests that are still there today. He built these incredible pools to water the forests that are still there today. And he did all these great accomplishments. He goes, man, I've accomplished so much in my life, and it's still kind of meaningless without God. And he, he, he pursued women. He, three, uh, six, 700 wives, 300 concubines, too many men. They, they chase after women. And he goes, man, I, I, I got all I could ever desire. I had, I had a thousand women in my life, and it's a lot of mother-in-laws, and it's pretty, pretty pointless is what he says there. That's the point. He goes, too many women, too many mother-in-laws, don't go down that road. Just pick one, amen. That's what he says. But he says, I pursued pleasure and I pursued women. And there was no joy in that. I was the wealthiest man to ever live. He, he said, I had servants who did everything for me. If, I, if there was a song I liked, I didn't buy it on iTunes. I bought the band and made the band play for me every single night on repeat. And I just, I had, I, I could buy anything. I had servants pick out my clothes and make my clothes and wear my shoes in and do everything for me. And I had all the, just the ease of life. And it was... It was pointless. It was meaningless. And he's not doing it to lament how terrible life is. He is doing it so that we don't waste our time pursuing these things. Because that's what too many Christians waste their time pursuing. Pleasure, success, money, stuff. And he goes, You've, you, can, you can try to do all these things that you want to do, but I've, I've done them. Everything you chase after, I've caught. And I've, I've done it better than you could ever imagine doing it. And it's empty. It's vanity. It's pointless. 
So it's not a lamenting kind of thing. It's a, it's a warning to us about how we should live our life and things that we should, should pursue. But in chapter 7, he kind of stops talking about the, the meaninglessness of all these things we're pursuing and stops lamenting life. And he begins to give some wisdom that he's learned through his incredible life. And it's been a few weeks since we've been in this book, so I want to look back at some of the things we already looked at in chapter number 7, and starting in verse number 1. It says, A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of one's birth. And so he starts out by saying, you know what? The first thing you need to understand is you need to spend less time worried about your outward appearance and more time worried about the inward man. Too many of us, we spend all of our time and our attention on the outward appearance. Now, granted, some of us don't spend enough. Go to Walmart about midnight, you'll see people who don't spend enough time on the outward appearance. But too many of us, especially, man, you go to Amy's Walmart, whoo, you go to Amy's Walmart at midnight, you better wear a bulletproof vest, all I'm saying, all right? But, uh, you know, so too many times we, we spend all this time, and look, in our culture, especially our culture, is so image-focused. Every ad you see is got some beautiful man or beautiful woman trying to sell things. And, you know, it's all, you know, right now it's, it's the first of the year. So, man, everybody's on, the, on trying to get a gym membership. And, oh, you got to pump iron and look good. And, and yeah, is there, is there benefit to physical exercise and taking care of your body? Yes, there is. Now, Paul said bodily exercise profits little. Amen. Amen. Proverbs says a wicked man runneth when no man pursueth. So you joggers out there, ain't nobody chasing you, you're wicked. That's what the Bible says, all right? Not, that's taken up with God. But so, you know, people are like, why don't you run? Because I'm not wicked, amen? Uh, you chase me, I'll run for a little bit, and uh, then I'll get my gun and shoot you. But so, he's, you know, so Solomon's not saying don't worry about your, your exterior body, don't worry about what you look like, don't worry about your health, don't worry about any of that. Take care of yourself. Be a good steward of the, the body and the health God's given you. But he says, you know what, maybe instead of worrying about so much how good your clothes look, maybe worry that you're, you're not a jerk. Maybe worry that you're a decent person. Maybe deal with your character for a while. Maybe because he says, what's the point of having the nicest clothes and looking so sharp and looking so great if when people think about you, they think, I hate that guy. I just, I can't stand that guy. I mean, he's just, I hate to be around him. And look, some of it, we, we have people in our lives that are like that where they're just people you just be just like, I just, I don't want to be around that guy. You say, I don't got anybody in my life. Then you're the guy. We got somebody who's like, I just don't want to be around that person. And Solomon says, instead of worrying about how good you look on the outside, take some time and worry about your character. Take some time and worry about how you treat people, how you act, how people think about you, and work on the inside. And then he says this kind of weird thing, uh, the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. And that's kind of odd for us. Because, like, man, why would, why would you, you know, we don't celebrate funerals. We have birthdays. You know, a baby's born, and every year after that, we have birthdays to celebrate their birth. And, you know, my birthday's coming up next Sunday. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, my size is 20s. That's my size right there. But uh, so we, we celebrate birthdays, and we celebrate, we don't celebrate funerals. We don't have every day, well, let's celebrate. This is the day, 30th year since Grandpa died. Let's have a party. But Solomon's saying the day of death is better than the day of birth, and it's kind of odd to us. But what he's saying here is birth is all about potential. When a baby's born, they, there's so much potential in them. They can, they can do and they can be anything, especially nowadays. They can be anything. They can do anything. And so there's so much potential there. But for the believer, death is not about loss. It's about fulfillment. 
When the believer dies, he receives everything God has promised him. And so Solomon says, man, yeah, the birthday is great. Kids are awesome. Babies are cute and cuddly. And look, I'll be honest with you, there's, there's, there's never been really a cute newborn. I know when people show their pictures, here's my baby, three seconds ever was born, isn't he beautiful? No, he's not. People will tell you, they, hey, look, I had, I had three of them. Connor especially, man, he was a rough-looking little baby. He grew into it. His nose was like this big, so much bigger than his face. He grew into it. He's a cute little boy now. But when he was first born, he was red and squishy and blah. So babies are cute and all after a while. But Solomon said, man, babies are great. They're potential. They're fun. They're awesome. But for the believer, it's better to worry about the day of death. Make sure you're living for God is what he's saying. Because for a believer, fulfillment is better than the opportunity that he does with. Then he continues with the theme. He talks about how he learned more during times of sorrow. He goes, man, I've been to the house of joy and it was fun, but I learned so much more in the house of mourning. He goes, I learn more during difficult times, during trials than I do during the good times of life. Because in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of pain, in the middle of trials, that is when God brings to the surface the issues he wants to deal with in our life. And it helps us to focus on what we need to change, what we need to do, how we need to get better. And so God uses trials, God uses difficulties to shape us, to conform us, to refine us in his image. We don't, we don't get closer to God during good times. And I wish we, if we did, we wouldn't have the bad times. But the, the fact is, human nature, we don't draw close to God when everyone's healthy and there's money in the bank and everything's going great and we're just a man. Because everything's going good, we, don't, we get to the point where we feel like we don't need God. And we see it in the life of the Israelites. They did it all the time. Life would go good. They would be blessed. They forgot about God. They started worshiping false idols, started having wickedness come in. So what did God do? God sent famine. God sent pestilence. God would send invasion to conquer them. And what did they do? When the trials come, they turn to God. And they see, we got to get rid of these idols. we got to get rid of this wickedness. we got to get right with God. And so Solomon says you learn more during the times of sorrow than you do during the times of joy. Because he's going to say this a little bit later too, in, in the, a little bit later in our chapter, we're going to look at it tonight. What he's saying here is, yes, be happy for the good times. Thank God for the good times. But you also need to be really thankful for the bad times. Because it's in the bad times that God is working in your life. It's in the bad times that God can teach you things. And he says, then he says, uh, Solomon says later on, he says, the wise man doesn't numb the pain during the hard times, during the difficult times. They don't try to numb the pain, but they pay attention to what God is pointing out in their life. Then he continues with his advice, and he tells us that another a wise man surrounds himself with friends that will call him out on his problems, will point out his mistakes. He says a fool surrounds himself with people who won't point out bad things, who won't tell them when they're in danger. A fool surrounds himself with other fools who think, hey, you're doing great, we're doing great, let's just have fun. But a wise man surrounds himself with people who love him enough to say, hey, there's an issue in your life and you need to deal with it. There's a problem in your life, there's a blind spot that you're not seeing. And we all need friends like that. Friends who, not out of, because look, we've, if, we've got people in our life who will point out our mistakes, right? They're called mother-in-laws or, or wives. Man, April's great at pointing out my mistakes. 
She's real good at it. And uh, man, my mom, my mom is really good at it. I mean, she can point out everything I've ever done wrong for the re- my entire life. But he's not saying people just point out, oh, you're wrong and you're, you're stupid in that area. But friends who say, hey, there's, a, there's an issue that if you don't deal with it, it may cause some problems. There's some danger there. A friend who will, when you're driving down the road and the bridge is out, will say, hey, the bridge is out. You may want to be careful. You may want to stop and stop going down that road. So he says a wise man does that. Then we finished up in verse number six. And I want to read that again and look at the lesson that Solomon was teaching there as we continue in chapter number seven. But look at verse number six. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Here's, Here's what Solomon's saying here. Wise people don't laugh when they're on fire at the fire. They put out the fire. He goes, when there's, when there's trouble in your life, wise people don't look at the trouble and say, man, that's so funny, and make a mock of sin and a mock of the difficulties. And a mock. He goes, wise men, when they see trouble in their life, they fix it. They don't ignore it. They don't pretend it's not there. They don't laugh at it. They deal with the issue. When you're on fire, you put out the fire. But a fool, when he's on fire, says, hey, look, I'm cool. That's on fire. That's pretty cool. That's what a fool, and I know you're sitting there thinking, who would ever do that? No one would ever be on fire. Well, that's, unless they're on something, they may. But most people, if they're sane and not stoned, aren't going to look at themselves on fire and go, oh, that's pretty funny. But he's talking metaphorically. When we see trouble in our life, a fool will laugh at it and ignore it and go on not realizing that they're being destroyed. But a wise man says, there's a problem. If I don't fix it, my life's going to be ruined. So already Solomon's given us some, some great advice about how to live our life, but he's not done. So let's pick up in verse number 7. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 7, verse 7, it says, Surely the oppression, surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Now, the word oppression there in the Hebrew, it means a weight. And so we all, it's a weight, it's a, a burden on someone. The word gift means a bribe. So here's the lesson that he's trying to teach us. There are going to be times in your life where the weight of the fallen world, the weight of sin, maybe it's sin in your life, maybe it's sin in someone else's life, maybe it's sin you see in a loved one's life, but there's going to be time where the, the weight of sin and the pressure of sin, it presses down on our soul. It weighs down on us. It oppresses us. And in those times, we will be tempted to either do what is wrong because it's easier or not do anything because we don't want to deal with it. We'll be tempted to ignore the pain, ignore the temptation, ignore the oppression from sin. And again, it could be sin in your life. You could see something coming in your life and you could see an issue and you could say, man, it's just... I'm sick of dealing with this problem. I've dealt with this sin time after time after time. I've dealt with this temptation for years, and I'm just, I'm, I'm tired of it. And I don't want to deal with it. And we ignore it. Or we can see it in someone else's life, a bro, another brother or sister's in Christ. And we can say, man, it's just, you know, it's their life. They got to make their own decision. They got to suffer their own consequences. And yeah, should people, do people suffer their own, yeah, they do, but as a brother or sister in Christ, it's my responsibility when I see sin creeping in to say, hey, you got an issue there. Again, that's surrounding yourselves with friends who will point out problems. So he says there'll be times where the weight of sin will just kind of beat us down and wear us down and we'll, we'll get to the point where we're like, you know what, I just, I don't want to deal with it. I'm just, I'm tired of it. 
It's easier just to ignore it. It's easier to let it happen. He says in those times, don't abandon what you know is right. Don't give in to the desire to just say, I'm done with it. When, it fe- when you're tired and exhausted and beaten down and worn down, those are the times when you say, you know what, I'm, I, I've dealt with this before. I don't feel like dealing with it now, but you know what, I have to do what is right. Saying, when you feel, here's what he's saying, when you feel like quitting, don't quit. Don't give up on what you know is right. When you do that, you're done. When you get to the point where you say, I'm tired of it, and I don't want to fight it anymore. The devil's won. He's conquered. He says, don't give in when you know what is right. That is dangerous because giving in at that moment or doing nothing or doing what is wrong will damage your heart, is what Solomon says. You know, Paul talks about it later on in the New Testament. He says, talks about people who have their conscience seared with the hot iron. People who have let wrong rule so much in their life that it doesn't bother them anymore. And we, we know Christians like that are people like that. Look, there, my mom, and I, my, I love my mom. She's a Jehovah's Witness, and she's good-hearted, but she's not really, she doesn't, she doesn't love Jesus or anything like that. So she, she's a little different than us. And so we, uh, several years, I mean, this is 10 years ago, when Avatar, y'all remember Avatar, that movie Avatar? I never saw the movie, but it's blue people. It reminds me of the Smurfs. It's kind of weird. But, you know, Avatar came out, and she's watched it, and she's like, oh, it's a great movie. You'll love it. And I'm not really into that stuff. So I'm like, well, I probably won't. And she's like, but Parker will love it. It's about space warriors, and, man, he'll love it. And she goes, there's no language in it whatsoever. Well, okay, so we'll watch Avatar. So we, she'd rented it, so we sat down and watched it. And, like, two minutes in, they're dropping, like, F-bombs, like, every – I'm like, Mom, what are you talking – it's like, oh, well, I just – I didn't notice it. That's what happens when you allow that stuff to – fill your mind all the time. That's what you pay attention. That's what you watch. What Solomon's saying is eventually it gets to the point where you don't notice it anymore. You don't notice sin anymore. You can watch TV shows and nudity used to bother you, but now it doesn't bother you anymore. And it's like, oh, uh, you know, I've talked to Christians who have watched some, some, some shows and some, and especially now with, with Netflix shows and Amazon Prime shows who don't have to go through FCC regulations so they can show anything they want to show and it's it's fine because it's not on cable television and you're paying for it and people watch them in the most raunchy stuff you're like how can that not bother you oh, i just i don't notice it anymore that's an issue when you don't notice sin anymore that's what solomon's saying that's what paul's saying when you don't notice sin anymore there's a problem in your life and you need to get right with god because he goes if you ignore it long enough it's going to damage your heart where what used to bother you when you were a brand new christian doesn't bother you anymore. And look, it's easy because it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. There's, there's language and there's curse. I mean, even just the other day, you're watching C-SPAN. You see this, this senator or this congresswoman get uh, sworn in and she's using vulgar language in her, getting, in her speech about getting sworn in. It's everywhere. And so it's easy to say, oh, well, that's just the way the world is. Solomon says you better be careful when you get to that point. Don't let your heart get cold to the things of God. If we, when we know what's wrong, we ignore it, because you're going to damage your heart. Doing wrong, doing nothing in the face of sin, and he says wrong will harden your heart where it doesn't seem wrong to you anymore. So he's saying when sin comes up and problems come up, don't ignore it. Don't say, well, I'm just I'm tired of fighting. 
tired of fighting my kid. You know, every time I turn around, he finds a new way to do wrong. He finds a new way to, to look at pornography. Or my husband, he finds a new way to get on his phone and do things. I'm, I'm just tired of fighting it. So I'm just, don't get tired of fighting it. Don't get tired and give up. Because when you do, you're damaging your heart. Look at verse number 8. It says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, uh, verses 8, 9, and 10 kind of go together. And so we're going to look at these individually, then kind of get the truth that these three have to go together. So what he's saying in verse number 8 is it is good for us to have goals and to understand what your goals are. Or here's, here's a better way of saying it. It's good to understand what the purposes are of things you do in life. What's the purpose of your marriage? What's the purpose of raising your children? What's the purpose of your job? What's the purpose of all these things that we do? Because it's good to, have a per to know what the purpose is of things you do in life. Because if we understand the purpose, if we understand the patience, then he says when things are difficult and times will get difficult, he says patience will increase. Anybody impatient? Yeah, everybody get your hands up. Widener, I see that hand. So we've all got, and look, don't ever pray for patience. You pray for patience. I prayed for patience six years ago. My mother-in-law moved in my basement, amen? And uh, she's not here so I can pick on her. Because uh, she's not watching on Facebook, I don't think. <laughs> uh, but anyway, oh, she is. Love you, Sue. Uh, he says, you pray, he says, but if you, if you understand the, the purpose of, of, the, of your things that you're doing in life, if you understand the purpose of rearing your children, when your children get to the point where they, they make you consider murder, they're going to. You get to the point where you're thinking, how old is too old to put them up for adoption? When you get to the point where you're like, I just, I don't know why we had these kids. You know, I love that, you know, that uh, movie, uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life in Christmas. I love that scene in George Bailey when everything's going wrong and he comes in the house and the kids are running around and one of them playing the piano over and over. He goes, why, why do we have to have all these kids? Like, you get to that point, he goes, if you understand what the purpose is, when those times come where you don't know what's going on and your kids are causing trouble, you have trouble in marriage, when you understand the purpose, he goes, you'll have the patience to say, this is, this is just one step in the journey that I'm going to. This is a, 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 a road stop on the, per, on the goal that I have in life. He goes, so patience will increase. But then he says something else will decrease. Look in verse number nine. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. So here's what he's saying. You need to understand the purposes of everything you're doing in life, understand what the goal is, what you're after, what you're trying to accomplish, what life is about, what the end is, because if you understand what the purpose is, if you understand what the goal is, then patience will increase and anger will decrease. So because you understand what your goal is, what your purpose is in doing things, when difficult times come, then you'll be patient through them because you know God's working it out. But since you're being more patient, you're gonna, patience is going to increase and your anger is going to decrease. Then he attacks something that I think is all too familiar and I think needs to be addressed in verse number 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Here's what he just said. Stop saying it was better in the good old days because it won't. Stop saying, man, it was so much better back when I... No, it wasn't. You think it was, but it wasn't. 
So stop lamenting all the things in the past. Stop looking for the good old days because they're gone. Too many people live in the past thinking that things were better. You know, it's like, you know, when I was a kid, nobody sinned and everybody loved Jesus. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. It was, that, that day has never been and since the fall of mankind where there was no sinners on the world. So we can look back and say, man, it was better back when I was here. And, and here's the thing. We, we, it, it's easy to do so. It's easy to look back at previous generations. Even me, I'm, you know, I'm only 40. I look back in the 80s. I think, man, it was so much better in the 80s. Now, the music was better. The movies were better. So we understand that. But it's like, man, just the, there was no sin. There weren't all these murders and all these kidnappings. It's like there were. We just didn't know about it because we weren't connected by the Internet. The world's not gotten any worse. You know, it's not like people are sinning more. There's, there's more murders. There's been, there's been, look, there's been serial killers for hundreds of years. We just know about them more now because we're more connected now. But even if it is getting worse, he's going, it doesn't do you any good to look back and say, man, it was so much better then because you know what? That's gone. The past is the past. You can't change it. You can't live in it. So forget about the things in the past. Here's, well, here's the thing. The, those days don't exist. Never in history of the world has that been true. So the truth from these three verses is this. You need to understand the goal of everything you're doing because when you do, you grow in patience, you get rid of anger, and most of us have anger because instead of focusing on what we're doing now, we're focusing on the goal we're focused on how good things used to be. My marriage used to be so much better, but now it's worse, and we're focused on what it, how it used to be when he first got married. Look, here's the thing you're going to have to understand in marriage. You're going to ch- your marriage is going to change throughout your life because you're going to change. You know, me and April, we got married when she, she was 18 and I was 20. We're not the same people we are. I'm, I'm twice the man I used to be, literally, but I'm not the same guy I was when I was 18. She's not the same. Hey, she's twice the woman she was too. She's not the same woman she was when she was 18. We're, we're different. And look, in 20 more years when I'm 60, I'm going to be a different guy. We're going to change. So stop looking back and say, man, our life was so much better when we were 18 and 20 because our rent was $350 a month with utilities included and our cars were paid off. And we didn't have any kids. We could do whatever we wanted to do. And man, it was so much better then. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was different, but it wasn't better. So we get angry because we're looking back at the past, lamenting what we feel like we lost. So he's saying, what does this look like for us personally and as a church? As believers in Christ, we are commanded to have the end of everything we do in mind when we do it. By having the end in mind, patience increases, anger decreases, and we stop looking back at the good old days. So what's the end goal of marriage? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 5 for the husband, it's for me to love April as Christ loved the church. It's for me to love my wife as Christ. Is the purpose of my marriage, is the goal of my marriage to have, to have somebody to spend the rest of my life with until I die? No, that's not the purpose of it. That's a great benefit. But that's not, that's not the purpose of it. Is it for a tax break? No. Have someone cook for me three times a week or seven, five times a week? No, I, I do most of the cooking because I'm a better cook on meat than she is. She's, she fries meat because she's afraid of salmonella. And I think, hey, never, salmonella never killed anybody. Although I did. But, so is it the purpose to have some? No, the purpose of my marriage is to love my wife with the sacrificial love of Jesus and with the same passion that he had for the church. That's the focus. That's the goal. That's the purpose. What's April's goal in marriage? It's for her to submit to the loving servant leadership like she submits to Christ. Not out of fear, 
Not out of, out of, but out of love and a desire to please and to do what is right. The end goal of marriage is not the love story you have in your mind. It's not your happiness. It's not your, your joy. The per, look, if you try to find your happiness and fulfillment with another sinner, you're going to be disappointed. Because you get two sinners living together, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be difficulties. There's gonna be, and then you start having a bunch of other little sinners running around. It's going to get bad. So you can't, oh, perhaps you might have joy and fulfillment. No, 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 that's not going to happen. And um, it's okay when, when two sinners live together that the, all their weaknesses are exposed. And that's okay because the end result of, of marriage is not your happiness. The end result of marriage, the purpose of marriage is the glorification of God. The purpose of your marriage is to glorify your heavenly father. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. To submit to your husband as, you, as the church submitted to Christ. But the purpose is to both of you together to bring honor and glory to God. What about kids? What's the, what's the purpose of kids? A tax break? That's not the purpose of it. To keep them safe and separated from the world. To have someone to take care of you when you get old. To train them to be good moral citizens that are kind and respectful to everyone. You know, I think in Christian circles, <clears throat> we have a warped view of what successful child rearing is. We think it's a win if the child grows up and they stay in church and they, they listen to Christian music and they, they do pretty good and, and they, they, they say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Oh, that's a, I've done my job. I've got to raise a good Christian kid. And we think we did a good job because we protect them from corruption. We protected them from being just like the unsaved kids. But the Bible is very clear. The purpose of raising kids is to train them to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to glorify Jesus. The purpose of raising kids is to raise them for the glory of God. The end result is not just creating moral or decent members of society. It's to impart unto, into them the glory of God. Solomon says we keep the correct goal in mind, the correct purpose in mind as our focus. Patience increases Anger decreases, and we stop looking back nostalgically at times that we pretend we're better than they are now. That's how we do it individually, but what about a church? How do we, as a church, do that? Same thing. We focus on the purpose of the church and forget about the past. The story of, of New Grace, man, it's an incredible story of God's moving through the years and to his, having his grace on the lives of two churches. It's been an incredible journey. There's been hard times. There's going to be harder times still. But as we focus on the goal of the church, the purpose of the church, our patience with the difficult times increases and anger over silly things decreases. And we also need to stop looking back at what we think were the good old days. There were good times there, but they were steps that God used to get us to where we are and to focus on what we're supposed to focus on and the purpose of the church. Again, what's the purpose of the church? To have a great big auditorium, have a big uh, a congregation full, to raise a lot of money, to have a famous pastor? No. The purpose of the church is to see souls saved and bring glory to God. That's the purpose of the church. And everything we do should be focused on, is it seeing souls saved? Is it strengthening Christians? Is it bringing glory to God. That should be the goal of everything we do as a church and everything we do as a believer, bringing glory to God and building his kingdom. And if we understand that's the purpose of everything we do, our patience increases, our anger decreases, and we stop lamenting what we feel like we've lost. Let's keep going through chapter 7. Look at verse number 11. 
<clears throat> wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. What he's saying here is there's going to be some moments that, and he, he said it again, he's kind of refocusing on this, there's going to be some moments in life that try to steal what you know is right from you. Have you ever, here's what I mean, there, there are those instances in life, there are circumstances in life where we are facing trials, we're facing burdens, we're facing difficulties that seem to be focused on our weaknesses. You ever had those times? Where you're like, man, this is what I'm going through is just exactly the, what I struggle with. It seems like God is, has tailor-made this trial to focus on my weakness. Here's the biblical truth. He did. Because he wants you to work on your weakness. But there are times where we're like, this is just, it's too much. And we feel like giving up. We feel like stopping it. And, and we feel like giving into it. And what Paul, uh, Solomon's saying here is in those times, in those moments, protect what you know that is right, protect what you know to be true, protect what you know to be right as much as you protect your money. Because we protect our money. We keep it in a bank or you know, under a mattress or whatever. You lose your debit card, man, you're canceling that thing right away. Someone steals 20 bucks from you, we're furious about it. Solomon says, why don't you protect your morality as much as you protect your paycheck? as much as you protect your money, because it's more valuable to you than money. Protect what you know is right, like it's the greatest treasure in the world, because it is. Your standing with God, your purity with God, your morality is more important than any, any amount of money we could ever have. Too many people abandon what they know is right when difficulties come, when trials come. And Solomon says we are to guard our morality, guard what we know to be right. And look at verse number 13. <clears throat> Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? So again, it's kind of continuing on this theme. He's like, you, you know, when trials come, don't abandon what you know is right, but look to God. Consider his works because God is able to, the only one who's able to fix what is broken. God's the only one who's able to make straight what is crooked. We live in a fallen and cursed world. There's no denying that. Depravity is all around us. It's everywhere. And no matter what we do, the curse remains until Jesus returns to make it new. So he goes, when trials come and difficulties come and you want to give up, you want to give in because the depravity is so hard and it's everywhere. And it's just easier to give in and go with the flow and just do what everybody else is doing. He's saying, don't give up your morality. Hold on to it like you would your purse strings and guard it like you do your wallet. And look to Jesus because understanding one day he's going to fix this entire mess. One day he's going to straighten out what's been made crooked. And with that, with that in view, we need to look at verse number 14. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of ad adversity, consider. God also hath set the one over against the other the end, to the end that man should find nothing after him. Here's what he says. <clears throat> when everything's going great, when the, the stars are aligned and there's plenty to eat and there's money in the bank, rejoice in that. Rejoice when things are going good. But, and thank God for that, but when everything's going wrong, when it's dark, 
and you're broke and you're sick and there's no stars and you can't find a friend, enjoy that, rejoice in that, and thank God for that because that is God's gift to you. Rejoice in the good times and rejoice in the bad times because both are a gift from God. And we don't like thinking about that. We think, man, the gifts of God are, are every good thing comes from heaven. Every good thing comes from the Father. And man, every good gift comes. And yes, every good gift does come from God. But the pain is a gift of God too. The heartache is a gift of God too. The trials are a gift of God too. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the entire Bible. Man, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is, is talking with God and he's talking with God about a problem that he's having. And he says, man, I've got, he tells us that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And he goes, man, God gave me this thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. He goes, God gave me this issue, this problem to keep me humble. So I wouldn't get too proud and exalt myself and think highly of myself and think, man, look how great I am. I'm the, I'm the great apostle Paul, wrote over half the New Testament, see all these churches started, I am incredible, man. Paul says, so that I wouldn't get too proud, God gave me this thorn in the flesh. And I came to God and I said, God, I, I've got it. I understand the lesson. Can you take this thorn away? And God said, no. Paul said, well, God, you know, I understand your purpose for it. I've learned the lesson. I'm not going to get prideful. I'm going to keep humble. Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to stay humble, so just, just take this thorn from me. And God said, no. So Paul said, God, no, seriously, I'm, I'm getting tired of it. I'm fed up. Three times he asked God to take the thorn away, and three times God said no. And then God told him finally why in, verse number, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says he's not going to do it because my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here's, here's what God told Paul, this thorn that you hate won't be taken away because it's a gift from me. Be thankful for it. Everything we go through, every joy, every pain, every victory, every defeat is used by God to shape us into the image of his son to bring glory to him. We are to thank him for every single gift. The good times, the times that are, that, are, that are plenty, the times we can rejoice in, but also the heartache. Thank God for all of it because all of it is God working in your life to make you more like him. Solomon lived an incredible life and we can learn some incredible lessons from him and from what he, wants, he learned as well. When difficulty comes, don't abandon what you know is right. Keep your focus on the purpose and the goal of everything you do and rejoice and give thanks for the good times and the bad times that we face. Let's learn these lessons tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.